History of England, Chapter 13, Part 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England, from the Accession of James II, by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 13, Part 4. At length, the 14th of March, the day fixed for the meeting of the estates, arrived, and the Parliament House was crowded. Nine prelates were in their places. When Argyle presented himself, a single lord protested against the admission of a person whom a legal sentence, passed in due form, and still unreversed, had deprived of the honours of the peerage. But this objection was overruled by the general sense of the assembly. When Melville appeared, no voice was raised against his admission. The Bishop of Edinburgh officiated as chaplain, and made it one of his petitions that God would help and restore King James. It soon appeared that the general feeling of the convention was by no means in harmony with this prayer. The first matter to be decided was the choice of a president. The Duke of Hamilton was supported by the Whigs, the Marquis of Athol by the Jacobites. Neither candidate possessed, and neither deserved, the entire confidence of his supporters. Hamilton had been a privy councillor of James, had borne a part in many unjustifiable acts, and had offered but a very cautious and languid opposition to the most daring attacks on the laws and religion of Scotland. Not till the Dutch guards were at Whitehall had he ventured to speak out. Then he had joined the victorious party, and had assured the Whigs that he had pretended to be their enemy, only in order that he might, without incurring suspicion, act as their friend. Athol was still less to be trusted. His abilities were mean, his temper false, pusillanimous, and cruel. In the late reign he had gained a dishonorable notoriety by the barbarous actions of which he had been guilty in Argyleshire. He had turned with the turn of fortune, and had paid servile court to the Prince of Orange, but had been coldly received, and had now, from mere mortification, come back to the party which he had deserted. Neither of the rival noblemen had chosen to stake the dignities and lands of his house on the issue of the contention between the rival kings. The eldest son of Hamilton had declared for James, and the eldest son of Athol for William, so that, in any event, both coronets and both estates were safe. But in Scotland the fashionable notions touching political morality were lax, and the aristocratical sentiment was strong. The Whigs were therefore willing to forget that Hamilton had lately sate in the Council of James. The Jacobites were equally willing to forget that Athol had lately fawned on William. In political inconsistency, those two great lords were far indeed from standing by themselves, but in dignity and power they had scarcely an equal in the assembly. Their dissent was eminently illustrious. Their influence was immense. One of them could raise the western lowlands, the other could bring into the field an army of northern mountaineers. Round these chiefs, therefore, the hostile factions gathered. The votes were counted, and it appeared that Hamilton had a majority of forty. The consequence was that about twenty of the defeated party instantly passed over to the victors. 
At Westminster such a defection would have been thought strange, but it seems to have caused little surprise at Edinburgh. It is a remarkable circumstance that the same country should have produced in the same age the most wonderful specimens of both extremes of human nature. No class of men mentioned in history has ever adhered to a principle with more inflexible pertinacity than was found among the Scotch Puritans. Fine and imprisonment, the shears and the branding iron, the boot, the thumbscrew, and the gallows could not extort from the stubborn covenanter one evasive word on which it was possible to put a sense inconsistent with his theological system. Even in things indifferent he would hear of no compromise. And he was but too ready to consider all who recommended prudence and charity as traitors to the cause of truth. On the other hand, the Scotchmen of that generation, who made a figure in the Parliament House and in the Council Chamber, were the most dishonest and unblushing time-servers that the world has ever seen. The English marveled alike at both classes. There were indeed many stout-hearted nonconformists in the South, but scarcely any who in obstinacy, pugnacity, and hardihood could bear a comparison with the men of the school of Cameron. There were many knavish politicians in the South, but few so utterly destitute of morality, and still fewer so utterly destitute of shame, as the men of the school of Lauderdale. Perhaps it is natural that the most callous and impudent vice should be found in the near neighborhood of unreasonable and impracticable virtue. Where enthusiasts are ready to destroy or to be destroyed for trifles magnified into importance by a squeamish conscience, it is not strange that the very name of conscience should become a byword of contempt to cool and shrewd men of business. The majority, reinforced by the crowd of deserters from the minority, proceeded to name a committee of elections. Fifteen persons were chosen, and it soon appeared that twelve of these were not disposed to examine severely and to the regularity of any proceeding of which the result had been to send up a Whig to the Parliament House. The Duke of Hamilton is said to have been disgusted by the gross partiality of his own followers, and to have exerted himself, but with little success, to restrain their violence. Before the estates proceeded to deliberate on the business for which they had met, they thought it necessary to provide for their own security. They could not be perfectly at ease while the roof under which they sate was commanded by the batteries of the castle. A deputation was therefore sent to inform Gordon that the convention required him to evacuate the fortress within twenty-four hours, and that, if he complied, his past conduct should not be remembered against him. He asked a knight for consideration. During that night his wavering mind was confirmed by the exhortations of Dundee and Balcaris. On the morrow he sent an answer drawn in respectful but evasive terms. He was very far, he declared, from meditating harm to the city of Edinburgh. Least of all could he harbor any thought of molesting an august assembly which he regarded with profound reverence. He would willingly give bond for his good behavior to the amount of twenty thousand pounds sterling. But he was in communication with the government now established in England. He was in hourly expectation of important despatches from that government, and, till they arrived, he should not feel himself justified in resigning his command. These excuses were not admitted. Heralds and trumpeters were sent to summon the castle in form, 
and to denounce the penalties of high treason against those who should continue to occupy that fortress in defiance of the authority of the estates. Guards were at the same time posted to intercept all communication between the garrison and the city. Two days had been spent in these preludes, and it was expected that on the third morning the great contest would begin. Meanwhile the population of Edinburgh was in an excited state. It had been discovered that Dundee had paid visits to the castle, and it was believed that his exhortations had induced the garrison to hold out. His old soldiers were known to be gathering round him, and it might well be apprehended that he would make some desperate attempt. He, on the other hand, had been informed that the western covenanters who filled the cellars of the city had vowed vengeance on him, and in truth, when we consider that their temper was singularly savage and implacable, that they had been taught to regard the slaying of a persecutor as a duty, that no examples furnished by holy writ had been more frequently held up to their admiration than Ehud stabbing Eglon, and Samuel hewing Agag limb from limb, that they had never heard any achievement in the history of their own country more warmly praised by their favorite teachers than the butchery of Cardinal Beton and of Archbishop Sharp, we may well wonder that a man who had shed the blood of the saints like water should have been able to walk the high street in safety during a single day. The enemy whom Dundee had most reason to fear was a youth of distinguished courage and abilities named William Cleland. Cleland had, when little more than sixteen years old, borne arms in that insurrection which had been put down at Bothwell Bridge. He had since disgusted some virulent fanatics by his humanity and moderation. But with the great body of Presbyterians, his name stood high, for with the strict morality and ardent zeal of a Puritan he united some accomplishments of which few Puritans could boast. His manners were polished, and his literary and scientific attainments respectable. He was a linguist, mathematician, and a poet. It is true that his hymns, odes, ballads, and hudibrastic satires are of very little intrinsic value, but when it is considered that he was a mere boy when most of them were written, it must be admitted that they show considerable vigor of mind. He was now at Edinburgh. His influence among the West Country Whigs assembled there was great. He hated Dundee with deadly hatred, and was believed to be meditating some act of violence. On the 15th of March, Dundee received information that some of the Covenanters had bound themselves together to slay him and Sir George Mackenzie, whose eloquence and learning, long prostituted to the service of tyranny, had made him more odious to the Presbyterians than any other man of the gown. Dundee applied to Hamilton for protection, and Hamilton advised him to bring the matter under the consideration of the Convention at the next sitting. Before that sitting, a person named Crane arrived from France, with a letter addressed by the fugitive king to the estates. The letter was sealed. The bearer, strange to say, was not furnished with a copy for the information of the heads of the Jacobite party, nor did he bring any message, written or verbal, to either of James' agents. Belcaris and Dundee were mortified by finding that so little confidence was reposed in them, and were harassed by painful doubts touching the contents of the document on which so much depended. They were willing, however, to hope for the best. 
King James could not, situated as he was, be so ill-advised as to act in direct opposition to the counsel and entreaties of his friends. His letter, when opened, must be found to contain such gracious assurances as would animate the royalists and conciliate the moderate Whigs. His adherents, therefore, determined that it should be produced. When the convention reassembled on the morning of Saturday the 16th of March, it was proposed that measures should be taken for the personal security of the members. It was alleged that the life of Dundee had been threatened, that two men of sinister appearance had been watching the house where he lodged, and had been heard to say that they would use the dog as he had used them. Mackenzie complained that he too was in danger, and, with his usual copiousness and force of language, demanded the protection of the estates. But the matter was lightly treated by the majority, and the convention passed on to other business. It was then announced that Crane was at the door of the Parliament House. He was admitted. The paper of which he was in charge was laid on the table. Hamilton remarked that there was, in the hands of the Earl of Leven, a communication from the prince by whose authority the estates had been convoked. That communication seemed to be entitled to precedence. The convention was of the same opinion, and the well-weighed and prudent letter of William was read. It was then moved that the letter of James should be opened. The Whigs objected that it might possibly contain a mandate dissolving the convention. They therefore proposed that, before the seal was broken, the estate should resolve to continue sitting, notwithstanding any such mandate. The Jacobites, who knew no more than the Whigs what was in the letter, and were impatient to have it read, eagerly assented. A vote was passed by which the members bound themselves to consider an order which should command them to separate as a nullity, and to remain assembled till they should have accomplished the work of securing the liberty and religion of Scotland. This vote was signed by almost all the lords and gentlemen who were present. Seven out of nine bishops subscribed it. The names of Dundee and Belcaris, written by their own hands, may still be seen on the original roll. Balcaris afterwards excused what, on his principles, was beyond all dispute a flagrant act of treason, by saying that he and his friends had, from zeal for their master's interest, concurred in a declaration of rebellion against their master's authority, that they had anticipated the most salutary effects from the letter, and that, if they had not made some concession to the majority, the letter would not have been opened. In a few minutes the hopes of Balcaris were grievously disappointed. The letter from which so much had been hoped and feared was read with all the honours which Scottish parliaments were in the habit of paying to royal communications. But every word carried despair to the hearts of the Jacobites. It was plain that adversity had taught James neither wisdom nor mercy. All was obstinacy, cruelty, insolence. A pardon was promised to those traitors who should return their allegiance within a fortnight. Against all others, unsparing vengeance was denounced. Not only was no sorrow expressed for past offences, but the letter was itself a new offence, for it was written and countersigned by the apostate Melfort, who was, by the statutes of the realm, incapable of holding the office of secretary, and who was not less abhorred by the Protestant Tories than by the Whigs. The hall was in a tumult. 
The enemies of James were loud and vehement. His friends, angry with him, and ashamed of him, saw that it was vain to think of continuing the struggle in the convention. Every vote which had been doubtful when his letter was unsealed was now irrecoverably lost. The sitting closed in great agitation. It was Saturday afternoon. There was to be no other meeting till Monday morning. The Jacobite leaders held a consultation, and came to the conclusion that it was necessary to take a decided step. Dundee and Balcaris must use the powers with which they had been entrusted. The minority must forthwith leave Edinburgh, and assemble at Stirling. Athol assented, and undertook to bring a great body of his clansmen from the highlands to protect the deliberations of the Royalist Convention. Everything was arranged for the secession, but in a few hours the tardiness of one man and the haste of another ruined the whole plan. The Monday came. The Jacobite lords and gentlemen were actually taking horse for Stirling when Athol asked for a delay of twenty-four hours. He had no personal reason to be in haste. By staying he ran no risk of being assassinated. By going he incurred the risks inseparable from civil war. The members of his party, unwilling to separate from him, consented to the postponement which he requested, and repaired once more to the Parliament House. Dundee alone refused to stay a moment longer. His life was in danger. The convention had refused to protect him. He would not remain to be a mark for the pistols and daggers of murderers. Balcaris expostulated to no purpose. By departing alone, he said, you will give the alarm and break up the whole scheme. But Dundee was obstinate. Brave as he undoubtedly was, he seems, like any other brave men, to have been less proof against the danger of assassination than against any other form of danger. He knew what the hatred of the Covenanters was. He knew how well he had earned their hatred, and he was haunted by that consciousness of inexpiable guilt, and by that dread of a terrible retribution which the ancient polytheists personified under the awful name of the Furies. His old troopers, the Satans and Beelzebubs who had shared his crimes, and who now shared his perils, were ready to be the companions of his flight. Meanwhile, the convention had assembled. Mackenzie was on his legs, and was pathetically lamenting the hard condition of the estates, at once commanded by the guns of a fortress, and menaced by a fanatical rabble, when he was interrupted by some sentinels who came running from the posts near the castle. They had seen Dundee at the head of fifty horse on the Stirling Road. That road ran close under the huge rock on which the citadel is built. Gordon had appeared on the ramparts, and had made a sign that he had something to say. Dundee had climbed high enough to hear and to be heard, and was then actually conferring with the Duke. Up to that moment the hatred with which the Presbyterian members of the assembly regarded the merciless persecutor of their brethren in the faith had been restrained by the decorous forms of parliamentary deliberation. But now the explosion was terrible. Hamilton himself, who, by the acknowledgment of his opponents, had hitherto performed the duties of president with gravity and impartiality, was the loudest and fiercest man in the hall. "'It is high time,' he cried, "'that we should look to ourselves. The enemies of our religion and of our civil freedom are mustering all around us, 
and we may well suspect that they have accomplices even here. Lock the doors. Lay the keys on the table. Let nobody go out but those lords and gentlemen whom we shall appoint to call the citizens to arms. There are some good men from the West in Edinburgh, men for whom I can answer. The assembly raised a general cry of assent. Several members of the majority boasted that they too had brought with them trusty retainers who would turn out at a moment's notice against Claverhouse and his dragoons. All that Hamilton proposed was instantly done. The Jacobites, silent and unresisting, became prisoners. Levin went forth and ordered the drums to beat. The Covenanters of Lanarkshire and Ayrshire promptly obeyed the signal. The force thus assembled had indeed no very military appearance, but was amply sufficient to overawe the adherents of the House of Stuart. From Dundee nothing was to be hoped or feared. He had already scrambled down the castle hill, rejoined his troopers, and galloped westward. Hamilton now ordered the doors to be opened. The suspected members were at liberty to depart. Humbled and broken-spirited, yet glad that they had come off so well, they stole forth through the crowd of stern fanatics which filled the high street. All thought of secession was at an end. On the following day it was resolved that the kingdom should be put into a posture of defense. The preamble of this resolution contained a severe reflection on the perfidy of the traitor who, within a few hours after he had, by an engagement subscribed with his own hand, bound himself not to quit his post in the convention, had set the example of desertion, and given the signal of civil war. All Protestants, from sixteen to sixty, were ordered to hold themselves in readiness to assemble in arms at the first summons, and— that none might pretend ignorance, it was directed that the edict should be proclaimed at all the market-crosses throughout the realm. The estates then proceeded to send a letter of thanks to William. To this letter were attached the signatures of many noblemen and gentlemen who were in the interest of the banished king. The bishops, however, unanimously refused to subscribe their names. It had long been the custom of the parliaments of Scotland to entrust the preparation of acts to a select number of members who were designated as the Lords of the Articles. In conformity with this usage, the business of framing a plan for the settling of the government was now confided to a committee of twenty-four. Of the twenty-four, eight were peers, eight representatives of counties, and eight representatives of towns. The majority of the committee were Whigs and not a single prelate had a seat. The spirit of the Jacobites, broken by a succession of disasters, was about this time for a moment revived by the arrival of the Duke of Queensbury from London. His rank was high and his influence was great. His character, by comparison with the characters of those who surrounded him, was fair. When Popery was in the ascendant, he had been true to the cause of the Protestant Church, and, since Whiggism had been in the ascendant, he had been true to the cause of hereditary monarchy. Some thought that, if he had been earlier in his place, he might have been able to render important service to the House of Stuart. Even now the stimulants which he applied to his torpid and feeble party produced some faint symptoms of returning animation. Means were found of communicating with Gordon, and he was earnestly solicited to fire on the city. 
the Jacobites hoped that, as soon as the cannonballs had beaten down a few chimneys, the estates would adjourn to Glasgow. Time would thus be gained, and the Royalists might be able to execute their old project of meeting in a separate convention. Gordon, however, positively refused to take on himself so grave a responsibility on no better warrant than the request of a small cabal. By this time the estates had a guard on which they could rely more firmly than on the undisciplined and turbulent covenanters of the West. A squadron of English men-of-war from the Thames had arrived in the Firth of Forth. On board were the three Scottish regiments which had accompanied William from Holland. He had, with great judgment, selected them to protect the assembly which was to settle the government of their country, and that no cause of jealousy might be given to a people exquisitely sensitive on points of national honor. He had purged the ranks of all Dutch soldiers, and had thus reduced the number of men to about eleven hundred. This little force was commanded by Andrew Mackay, a Highlander of noble descent, who had served long on the continent, and who was distinguished by courage of the truest temper, and by a piety such as is seldom found in soldiers of fortune. The convention passed a resolution appointing Mackay general of their forces. When the question was put on this resolution, the Archbishop of Glasgow, unwilling doubtless to be a party to such an usurpation of powers which belonged to the king alone, begged that the prelates might be excused from voting. Divines, he said, had nothing to do with military arrangements. The fathers of the church, answered a member very keenly, have been lately favored with a new light. I myself have seen military orders signed by the most reverend person who has suddenly become so scrupulous. There was indeed one difference. Those orders were for dragooning Protestants, and the resolution before us is meant to protect us from papists. End of chapter 13, part 4